1: We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage? It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 3.10 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where... Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame in some ways can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame in other ways can can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis three ten and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves and as a result um, have to deal with that damaged view as at least even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them. Literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us. New book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. As I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? If, for example, if I if I were to back into a lit stove... Without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically?
2: I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective that the experience of shame is common, it's normal uh, we experience it early and often as human beings actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it given how it functions in our brain uh, but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, then do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself in our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you have already mentioned, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives. And then we tend to spread that, because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes... Um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions and so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it.
1: And the irony about this is that there is that sense when when we um, are aware of our own shame um We feel vulnerable. I mean, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you you can correct me on that. But, But there's interesting something there, because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing... That, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God and be able to find forgiveness, they they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same?
2: Well, we certainly do the same. And I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is is this notion that the uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing. Like We don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, what's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter two, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description in the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, It doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis and that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion and the irony now as we see that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed we would say i mean i don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby both of those things between a man and a woman and then the woman delivering a baby both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy require nakedness that vulnerability but are also very very powerfully creative when we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because of my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, and 27, when the text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image, that we are made as plural beings, we are made as people who were intended for each other, and therefore, in Genesis 2, 7, 18, when he says it's not good for the man to be alone, in fact, because we are so vulnerable, it is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves, but it is using shame to dismantle to deconstruct to destroy the entire creation not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If
1: you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going to, we're going to, turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it's ironic that as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about surely healing and restoration. But it's interesting how typically our response is that when, when we come aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're a fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points point out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it, instead of being uh, repelled from God, to see that that God died for us while we were at yet sinners— understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and, and rather than than allowing shame to, to repel us from God, to rather propel us to God. How do we make that happen, though?
2: Well, it's a great question, and I think, fortunately, we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection... And of course, after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly, Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course, this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that And Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think, for me, this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus, kind of, yeah, one can assume, one, one can imagine, uh, without, of course, having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the gospel around this story. One could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is, and it's also interesting to me that jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with peter it would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people and what's striking also is that jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned there's not going to be any shame left in peter that that jesus is going to allow for And so he actually has a real encounter with peter asking him to really explore this issue do you really love me now if it's me There is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking, then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep, And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, Hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, Hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge, Uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we in, in which we experience real release in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as as part of the body of Christ.
1: So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That there is that sense of I think was just suggesting here that dynamic that's taking place that that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that 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 um, that, that horizontal level of connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to, to experience what it's like to be forgiven.
2: That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That Our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another. And a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable to be naked and yet not shame not let shame have the talking stick in this space we in, in the book we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the hebrews in which we read therefore fix our eyes on jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross Scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him, he went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, We find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives.
1: So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damaged view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can um, bring about not just the, the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: It might have been the loss of a parent while you were very young, Maybe you have a dim memory of an event that you've struggled to keep hidden in a dark corner of your mind for all of your adult life. You struggle with lack of motivation at times, fear, bouts of depression. Maybe there are times that anger boils up to the surface to the point that you feel you can barely control the rage. You have a suspicion about what drives these moments of emotion and anger and frustration and fear, and yet you don't know what to do about it. You're terrified of the thought of sharing it for perhaps someone else will think you're either lying or have lost your mind. And at times you feel as if every aspect of your life is gripped with fear and you are totally paralyzed. From a professional standpoint, you might be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, a phrase we hear quite often, and yet what does it exactly mean? How are people diagnosed with it? But most importantly, how do you escape from it? How do you deal with the reality of your past and break free from that to allow you to move on to finding peace and liberty in your life for perhaps the very first time? Joining me today in the studio, two authors. The book is called Love Letters from the Edge, Meditations for Those Struggling with Brokenness, Trauma, and the pain of life. With us is returning once again, Shelley Beach, a multiple award-winning co-author, and she's written, by the way, more than 15 books, and she's co-founder of the PTSD Perspectives.org, providing consultation services on post-traumatic stress disorder in medical, mental health, educational, criminal justice, professional, and faith-based settings across the nation. Also joining her, a name that is certainly very well known to listeners of this program going back many, many years. In fact, You hear her name mentioned at the end of every program because we have to blame somebody. (laughs) Our producer, Wanda Sanchez... Wanda, in addition to being a book author, is the executive producer of this program and the executive publicist at WLS Communications, a public relations and media consulting communications firm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She also is the co-founder of PTSDperspectives.org. And ladies, welcome to the both of you. Thank, Thank you, you so Craig. much. Wanda, we're turning the tables on you. Yeah, Normally, really. how scary. you're bringing the guests <laughs> in and you're worried about yep. what the guests are going to do and coming back and saying to how to dig go, and today you get to be in the hot seat.
3: I am in the, I'm the victim today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Shelley, of course, has been um, a dear friend for many years and uh, a frequent guest on this program as well with many of the books that you have written, and it's great to have both of you join us to talk about a topic that, quite frankly, impacts the lives of more people than I guess most of us really realize, largely because many of the people that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, or the aftermath, I guess we'll call it, of bad things that happen in life, um, don't quite understand what it is, they don't know how to articulate it, they just know that they're not happy, they're frustrated, they're fearful, and it can run the gamut of impacting everything from your ability to go to work every day, to your ability to Carry on healthy relationships to even your ability to have a relationship with God.
3: Yes, absolutely.
1: Let's talk a bit first, Wanda, about the purpose behind the book, the motivation. How did this come into being?
3: Well, um, we, Shelley, and I had um, become friends. Um, in a, it's kind of a long story, but uh, but it's Lifeline was like the reason we be, we met. I, I booked her for Lifeline for um, a series of interviews about caregiving. And during this time, we didn't really speak on the phone very much. Um, We did email. i tell her what time the next segment's going to be on. Anyway, through this little bit of communication, we became friends. And um, she was actually the one that ended up telling me that she she believed I had PTSD and that I perhaps needed to get some help. So after I did get – I'm skipping over a lot. But after I did get treatment, um, we were traveling and speaking – um, about trauma, about PTSD, and about um, my you know the treatment that I went through, and not mus- not so much about the treatment but about the results of the treatment um, and we were everywhere we went, everywhere we went, people were asking us, please write a book, please write a book please we need we need to read what you have to say you know we would read it and um, and so listening to all those voices we we kind of knew we we wanted to do that um, but we also knew that um, we wanted to try and be very very careful um, because it could be you know a book that that could um, probably evoke or provoke some feelings you don 't want to have, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we knew we were going to have to kind of find a balance
1: there there 's that balance between addressing the issue and not creating the trigger point exactly right. and I guess even for for the potential reader to whom you were trying to give a sense of hope and reassurance right. and, and and for a lot of people. The trauma of discovering that there's trauma right. and maybe you can speak to that because there 's that sense sometimes that we 've gone through an experience that may be ten twenty thirty years ago right that we 've spent such a lifetime trying to push down, ignore, mm-hmm. maybe we have taken blame for it. it might be a case of of abuse or abandonment, variety of issues that happened maybe at childhood. Yeah, right. And a child can't process, can't understand, can't reason. Well right. daddy hits not because he hates me, but daddy hits because he has a drinking problem and he has a drinking problem because his father had a drinking problem right. and therefore right. that's all he knows He's- because the sins of the parents are visited upon the next generation. Right. A five year old can't understand that. Yes. So a five year old does what a five year old knows to do and that either is takes all the blame on I must have been a bad boy or a bad mm-hmm. girl or so stuffs it down. Mm-hmm. That this unresolved issue and conflict and pain never gets addressed, and yet manages to bubble its way to the surface in a lot of other ways. Right. Well,
4: there, there's trauma in everybody's life, and there's there's little t trauma, you, you know, which are you know the painful things that happened, and then there's the big t trauma that actually disrupts the way the brain works. And trauma with a capital T is any event that overwhelms your brain's ability to function and work and it and it actually causes that fight or flight response and during that type of event uh, there's a chemical wash that comes over the brain and the dual brain function of the right and left hemispheres of the brain with the right side doing one one role and the left side doing another the right side's primarily creative and language and pictures and images and sights and sounds and sense and emotions and then the left side of the brain doing linear function of putting things in time sequence and the more logical Those two functions, which are always going on simultaneously, they get broken apart during a a big T trauma, and you freeze. And um,
3: so the
4: linear side side shuts down. And so what we're left with with, is a Mm half-processed experience. And so... um, what we end up going through life with is coping mechanisms of how to deal with this mess that 's in our brain because we end up with, um, with with having all these triggers that cause this to replay over and over again and Unfortunately, the coping mechanisms are the behaviors that are commonly. You know addictions or hoarding or or um, avoidance or um, all kinds of acting out things that we feel so guilty about all of our lives and we may have had from the time that we were small or obsessive compulsive disorder or all kinds of things and sometimes we don't know why they're there for instance you may have had a medical experience when you were two or three years old that caused you to have this this terrible traumatic medical response because you know, PTSD is not just linked to abuse. It can be linked to medical experiences. It can be linked to being in a car accident. It can be linked to something that you saw or accident. even experienced in the womb, believe it or not. So um, there are people who don't even recognize what's causing them to have certain patterns of behavior. And um, I had just been doing some investigation about PTSD because of things that were happening in my family to some of my family members and myself. I'd been. Um, sexually assaulted multiple multiple times plus I'd had other experiences that were traumatic and I was trying to figure out whether or not anybody could um, you know find help <laughs> and um, so that's why when I met Wanda I had some recommendations for her regarding a place where she could go and not get counseling and not just go and talk about it but go get um, treatment that would actually help address the PTSD itself
1: So, Is it important to make that connection to reconnect those dots because there is as you say a disconnect that becomes part of the coping mechanism and sometimes enough time passes that even the acknowledgement as to what is actually behind the trigger yes there might be other things that trigger mm-hmm. but what's behind the triggers is it important yeah. To yeah. Make beginning, important middle and that connection to find an end healing?
4: the story yeah. yes Yes. Well, like for me, uh, there was a gun put to my head, and um, one of, one of, in one of my assaults, there was a gun put to my head, and the man told me he was going to blow my head off and, and kill me um, if I didn't do what he told me to do. And I fought him, and so all during that time, I was waiting for the gun to go off and my brain to be blown off, I, my head to be blown off or whatever. So um, I, I have a, a trigger response to loud noises um uh, uh, quite, a quite quite yeah, a startle yeah. response. But until I understood where that came from, um the startle response was much stronger than it is now and it could it could send me into um a, a dissociation. Yeah. Into dissociation. Yeah. yeah, where I would I would startle and then I would just kind of drift away and um just kind of be in a dazed state of mind that doesn't happen now i'll I'll startle but i I don't go away um because i know what it is i know what it's linked to and i've had some trauma treatment so,
3: and so when you process a trauma when you finally start to tell the truth mm-hmm. about the story um because see um, just the, what what you have in your head the, the memory or whatever's starting to come up for you if it's not if you don't have it all yet, you know of why, or that's very important because tra- what trauma also does because it shuts down one side and this side's going crazy, it just talks mess to you,
4: yeah, lies, so it, lies, it lies
3: talks down to you. It never talks like you're fabulously wonderful. No, it's you know you're stupid and you're ugly or whatever. It just picks up this. I don't even know how to how to explain that.
4: You are you are ruined. You you're are ruined. you are trash. You are all these. Terrible
3: thing. So when things. you start to tell the truth to yourself about really what happened, you know, that, that this bad thing happened, but the bad thing isn't you.
4: Mm. Right.
3: You know, the bad thing is not you. It's a bad thing, but that bad thing is not you. And you get to actually, that's the truth. So when mm-hmm. you start to process, but you've never heard that because it's always been in your head. you never said it out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, so now the, the the people that were helping me learn to do this, you know, we're, we're telling me, how, we're showing me how to, um, how, to, how to process trauma without re-triggering myself. They didn't re-traumatize me. Um, there is, there are ways to process trauma that are not painful, that don't have to take a million years, um, and, and, and that are successful.
1: Let's talk about some of that when we come back after a brief timeout. With me today in studio, Shelley Beach and our producer, Wanda Sanchez. A look at love letters from the edge as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the conversation on this edition of Lifeline. We have with us today in-studio authors Shelley Beach and Wanda Sanchez. You say, I know those names. Well, you should. Um, Shelley's been a frequent guest on this program down through the years. And Wanda, of course, has been our producer for a week or two. A week it's or two. 20 <laughs> years, something like that. We've been on we've been on the air 28 years. And I think mm-hmm. um, certainly the lion's share of the 28 yeah. years. Together, they've written a new book called Love Letters from the Edge. It's released by Kriegel Publications, available Usual Suspects, Amazon. Amazon.com. Also through the website, ptsdperspectives.org. Wanda, just before the break, you were mentioning about the importance of truth telling. Yes. So oftentimes in a traumatic experience, if it's one, for example, we have been on the receiving end of abuse, the perpetrator will tell lies. Right. And those lies are a way to try and avoid the truth. Right. Dealing with their own truth. Yes. Yeah. Stuffing things down to never have to be accountable for their actions. And then after a while, we begin to understand that if, you know, the lies sometimes are a part of that coping mechanism. And we know certainly from the spiritual dynamic here, one of the disconnects that I think we need to very importantly reconnect for somebody that is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder is the fact that the originator of these lies is very Satan himself.
3: That's absolutely right. And that's the, the subtle thing is that while you're dealing with the big parts of the trauma, the accident or the, the sexual abuse, whatever, the, the lies that have been laid every day, really, since that trauma, you know, they kind of get away. If you're not looking for that, right. and if you don't know that telling the truth is honestly going to be a way to find freedom – that's why so many programs don't don't really work. I mean, you know, um, they're dealing with the wrong things. We watch. Uh, have you ever seen Hoarders or Celebrity Rehab or any of those things we've seen on TV where they clean you up, they take away the drugs, they clean get, clean off alcohol, they they clean the house of the hoarder, they and then they go away, and this person who's left with no drugs, no alcohol, and a clean house, that's like. It's a death worse. They become worse. Yeah, of course they. They didn't deal with the trauma. Well, they didn't deal with what brought them there. So they're going to do it again. You know, it's good. They're going to end up right back there again. But how yeah, they process the trauma of the of the person, and that doesn't mean talk about it. It means. Getting these two parts of the brain to work. So stopping this cycle
1: absolutely requires going back to what you were saying earlier, Shelley, and that is the the cognitive disconnect that happens as the coping mechanism at whatever yes. point the trauma is made. And mm-hmm. I think it's right. important to point out this is not just for children; right. this happens for adults as well. Mm-hmm. It is the chemical reaction. It is the neurological reaction. Yes. It is the. Fallen nature, sin reaction. Yes. Then, when we try to deal with the trauma, apart with putting in perspective of God, right?
4: There's also that huge faith component because you are not when you are experiencing when you've experienced this big T trauma, especially if it's come through through sexual abuse or or if it's come through um, domestic violence or in your childhood having witnessed certain kinds of things or experienced them you're not going to feel like the truth is true for you um as wanda put it she was the asterisk in the bible Mm -hmm. all those things were true for everybody else but they weren't true for her because that's the way your emotions are when when you feel um when when you've experienced certain kinds of trauma so you have to come to the point where you're willing to say um i'm going to um well at one point i said to her she was like you know I I don't have any faith. I don't I don't have any hope. And I said, Well, I got a bucket. I'm going to carry it for you. And when you're ready to carry it for somebody else, you know, you, you get the bucket back. Um, and that's the way it is. Sometimes with with PTSD and trauma, is that you you can't depend on your feelings and your emotions.
1: And I would imagine too, as much as I brought the God component into this conversation, that that can also be a double edged sword in that. You look at the imagery that we see through the church, throughout Scripture, our Heavenly Father, God the Father. And yet, what do you do if a child, for example, comes home to a father every night who is abusive, who is an alcoholic, who you see slapping your mother around, drinking, beating the kids up, maybe engaged Mm -hmm. in sexual abuse within the family? All of a sudden now, your ability to relate to a loving, kind Grace-filled heavenly Father versus the mess of this guy. That's right. All and of I, a sudden now, that that picture is a difficult one to relate to worked. because the loving Father. Yeah. You got to yes. be kidding me,
4: right? I think the church needs to be speaking honestly and openly on these issues. We need to be talking about all mental health issues honestly from the top down. I'm so glad what uh, Rick and Kay Warren are doing at Saddleback and other churches following suit in talking about. mental illness it's not a it's not a taboo subject but often it's not discussed in in churches to say that um this is something that um almost 10 percent of people who are sitting in our pews and in our congregations are struggling with with trauma and ptsd if you do the math on i don't know what size church people may be going to but in my church that's a lot of people that's a lot of people and and they're struggling even with coming through the door and knowing where they can sit and feel safe. So so we need to confront these issues. We need to talk about them honestly and talk about the fact that you may have had that experience or are having that experience in your home. It hurts. But that's a lie and a deception. That's not God, That's not who God is. And that God didn't. Perpetrate this abuse upon you, either.
1: Um, well, and not only is that not who God is, but as you mentioned a moment ago, Wanda, that's not who you are either.
4: No, right. no, no, we, no. We tend to sometimes
1: yes. in in this failed methodology of, of creating a coping mechanism to survive, we accept blame and take on blame for and, and no, reassign no, blame no. in so many ways that is so far disconnected from reality. Yes, and yet in the moment, well, that's all you know to do. Yes. Right.
4: Oh, and, yeah. we, and we wanted this book to be kind of a safe place for not ju- not just women, but it's probably primarily women because we tend to speak mostly in those settings and often in prison for for women to ask God tough questions. Where were you when I was being thrown down the basement stairs? Where were you when I lost my when I lost my child? Where were you when we all ask those questions? Sometimes we're afraid to say them out loud because we think that we insult God, but we don't. Um, and the book doesn't provide easy, glib answers. What it does is it's like every every devotional is a letter from a woman who's or a person who's heartbroken in some circumstance to God, just pouring out her heart. It's like a, a prayer to God. And then the second half of each devotion is just a love letter back from God. Most of it's just um, straight scripture, just paraphrased a little bit. And they're not... They're not, like I said, Globe Answers. They're um, just expressing the character of God and his love for us.
1: In this truth-telling process, we'll call it, is it important to allow yourself to admit how you're feeling? And I ask that question because... I would imagine a lot of people that have gone through post-traumatic stress disorder have spent such a long time trying to stuff it down, push it away, disconnect from the pain of it all, that not only is there a lot of deflection and denial going on, but even to admit, I'm angry at God. Oh, yes. Even I mean, to that's admit, what, yes. you know what? Oh, yeah. I go to church every day, and I smile, and I put on mm-hmm. a cheery face
4: but mm-hmm. that's not how
1: I'm feeling. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, for instance, there's, there are statistics that demonstrate the, the trauma that is associated with the loss of children before birth, so for miscarriage and those kinds of things. Yet that's that's often diminished in our culture, and it's just like, well, you can try again, or, oh, you already have two you children like at home, too. or whatever. But even in a situation, like, we need to have the opportunity for people to grieve, for us to inventory our losses. Sometimes when somebody has extreme abusive experiences you will grow up and achieve adulthood having missed out on many things and you need to be able to look back and grieve and say honestly this is what i have lost and to be able to to be in that place and, and speak honestly with God and even with
3: other people about because you know God can take it He knows already you know and so uh, that was always where I, I, I was I was I wouldn't talk to anyone because I was ashamed of the way I was I felt because I felt deeply disappointed in God and, but on the other hand I also have a, a very deep faith and it's like. My, the most important thing in my life you know so it was a very confusing time and place for me um, it's funny
1: how we'll get shut down by shame mm-hmm. and yet the first example we see of that is the parents so to speak of yeah. humankind
3: yep. good old adam and Eve,
1: and <laughs> they tried to hide their yeah. shame yep. and yet god fully knew yep. god mm-hmm. knew. let's pause on that part we're yes. going to come back to more of our conversation shelly beach and wanda sanchez in studio love letters from the edge as lifeline continues.